friends, Life as an Observer is back. I'm really excited to be here. And I'm going to do a, over the next couple of months, we're going to go through a unveiling of the Yoga Sutras. Now, the word yoga, don't let that turn you off. This has nothing to do with the asana practice, really, other than um, one, one week we may cover that just a little bit. This is more about the philosophy and the spiritual side of yoga. And I really want to cover this. I've been wanting to do this. And I covered in my yoga teacher training. So I'm really hoping you'll, you'll come along with me for this. We'll start with just kind of a, a brief introduction today of Patanjali in his book, The Yoga Sutras, and softly cover the, the eight limbs of yoga just as an overview and jump into ahimsa. But before we do that, I want to talk about some of the things that are happening, I guess, in my world. And I, I want you to follow along if you can. They have a lot of things happening. So as this podcast goes out, you may be able to join it. In February, I have have a few things coming up. And we have a, a class on, oh, I can't even, the, the Breath Source app. We just changed the name. So it's rebranding to the Source app. And it will be, if you to, to get more information, I'll put it in the, in, the, in the show notes here. But it's a morning class, at least where I'm at. And I'm going to be teaching something called Breath as Medicine, which is a manifesting and breathwork class. So you can get on there and and join me for that. I have just released a bunch of new tracks, including some ice bathing videos. So you just download the Breath Source app and, you know, start using it. Get your very own access to the, some of the best and most knowledgeable breath masters on the planet. And I don't know where we're at now, 30-something Breathmasters on there. I think maybe even more now with our recent release or upcoming release to the Source Latino, which will be our Latin American version of the app. So that's coming up on February the 19th. Now, I do have weekly live classes I'm doing on Insight Timer, and I've released a few new tracks on there, including one for overcoming PTSD. And another, which is an NSDR or non-sleep deep rest, which is a meditation, something I do almost daily. So I'm interested to share that with you. This year, we're doing another teacher training for language of breath. And that's happening in Tennessee this year. That cohort is now full, but you can join the online online course. So it's a six-week course, and then we'll get you ready for 2025 teacher training. If you want to learn to become a breath master, Come on over to the language of breath. I will put a link in the show notes for you to be able to sign up for that using my code and a discount. So I have a discount for you to be able to join that and to be able to start learning more about the science and philosophy of breath work, not just the techniques, because that's a very small piece of it. I have a couple things coming up. I'm, I'm one of them I'm going to withhold for right now because I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing it or not in March. I haven't got confirmation of it yet. However, the Zion Yoga Fest is happening in May, May 30th. So if you want to come out to my homeland here in southern Utah, I'll be teaching with my friend DJ Taz Rashid, doing our sound off experience with breathwork and yoga. And I'll be teaching some other things at that, including a sound bath in the, the late in the festival on Sunday and doing some other intention settings uh, early in the practice. Also, we have Yin on Fire Festival, which is happening in September, and that's happening in Cedar City. Yin on Fire is September 19th through 22nd, so if you want to come to that, I can tell you I can't release a lot of this, 
but there are some pretty nice performers going to be performing. I'll be teaching at it, some breath work and speaking on stage. Lots, lots of people coming to that one. I'm really excited for it. We're doing some building and we're going to be doing some art there. It is going to be, this is the second year, right? And I think eventually it will be the largest wellness festival in the country, if not the world, as we build it and, and grow with it. In addition to that, boy, I could put a whole bunch of other things. I've been working on these sandstone coasters called Santosha Stone. You can follow us on Instagram if you like. We have an Etsy shop, which I will drop the link on. Really special to me. Came across this piece of property that has a mine on it, and we're harvesting the sandstone. It's already been left by the old miners, so we're not cutting anything else out. It's just already laying on the ground in big uh, cores, and we are turning them into sandstone coasters. So you could have a little piece of Santosha, which we'll be talking about in the Eight Limbs of Yoga. What is Santosha? Well, it means contentment. But you can have a piece of those if you like. Also, just as always, my books are, are in Amazon, my breathwork and psychedelic journey books, including my children's book, The SS Meditation Goes to the Moon. I'll be releasing another one very, very soon, which is going to be the version where we go to Mars. And these are children's mindfulness books and breath work books. So if you like that kind of thing or you want to introduce your kids to that, I will leave the links to my books as well. Um, I think that's about it for announcements. Let's jump right in to the eight limbs of yoga or the yoga sutras. I guess is a better way to say that the yoga sutras from Sri Patanjali. We're going to do something a little bit different. Now, I've taken a little bit of a break from the microphone here for, I don't know, a couple months uh, working on other things. And as we come back into the new season of Life as an Observer, I want to do an exploration of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. If you're not familiar with this, I'm going to give you a little bit of background in this episode. And then the episodes going forward, we're going to go through the eight limbs of yoga. Now, this Eightfold Path is something that was defined by Patanjali, and it's kind of what yoga teacher trainings are made of these days. It's really kind of the core essence of it. Some would call it the Bible of yoga. Others would call it a guidebook. It's really just a set of guidelines, and I'm going to go through at least to what my belief system is and also what my knowledge and wisdom is on these subjects knowledge being that that I've read and wisdom that I believe and that is in my heart. And I would like you to kind of follow along with this. So you're welcome to, I'll, I'll cite a few references in a few different places, but I want to talk to you a little bit about Sri Patanjali, at least here in the beginning. And we'll move into the first of the Yamas. Now, the, the, the book I'm talking about is uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. It's 195 sutras. And it's broken up into four different books. And you can find lots of different translations all over through Amazon or different booksellers. And I'm going to tell you the ones that I really like and the translations that I really like. So who is Patanjali? I guess it's probably the first thing. Who is Patanjali? Well, Maharishi Sri Patanjali is, well, we'll call him a sage. He maybe lived... You know, they say maybe even five to 10,000 years ago. And the name Patanjali means the one who fell in hands. And Patanjali is credited for a couple things. He's credited for this Yoga Sutras, which we're going to get into. He's also credited for grammar. 
the use of grammar and the, some of the words and language in Sanskrit. And he's also credited for a creation of Ayurveda, and which is the kind of the yogic medicine for the body, whereas yoga, which we know in the West is asana practice, is really for the mind. And I know we many think of it as the practice for the body, but it's really for the mind. Uh, he even says that in one of the first sutras, in the in the uh, first book, second sutra, he says, "Yoga chittas vritti naranha," which means yoga is the calming of the whirlwind of the mind. That's what yoga is. So even you ask at the beginning, "What is yoga?" Well, that's what it is. It's the calming of the whirlwind of the mind. Well, I guess we have to ask, "What is a sutra?" And the sutra is an aphorism. And if you were to look up what that is. An aphorism is that which is clear, non-contradicting, non-exaggerating, and free from any defects or repeated words. So these are like poems. Just think of them as that. These four chapters, 195 sutras, all containing information about different parts of yoga, whether it be the obstacles, the kleshas, whether it be about some of the, the powers, if you will, the siddhis. Or maybe it's even about meditation or asana practice. And you can find, we kind of jump around as we go through the book here. I'm, you know, there, there's going to be several different areas in which we talk about it. Sri Patanjali and, you know, even some people think that, that Patanjali was maybe a group of people just because there was so much knowledge. Other people look to him as like the, as a Christ-like person, very much a prophet of his time. There's there's no definitive answer here. It's just a matter of belief and maybe a little bit of faith of what you think Patanjali is or who he think you think he was. But I'm going to move into the the eight limbs or the eightfold path, and we'll probably talk a little bit about Patanjali going further. But I like to think of the eightfold path not as like a a tree. A lot of people do that because they hear the limbs of yoga. I look at it more as like kind of if you were to drop, drop a pebble into a pond and the ripples that go out, you can kind of imagine eight ripples going out. Well, seven ripples going out in the middle where the, the pebble dropped. I would kind of think of that as our the center of the limbs. And that middle dot, I would call that the eighth one, which is samadhi. And starting from the outside, you have the yamas, the niyamas. And there are five different yamas and niyamas. So that's 10 within that area. And the third is asana. Now, these are the these three are kind of what I look at as our outward practices. So yama, niyama, asana, and then it goes into pranayama, which is sort of where the transition happens, and then to pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. Now, let me kind of define what those are. So yama are the restraints. These are the things that were said, hey, don't do that. The niyamas are observances or kind of how we see the world, how we interact with the world. Asana is asana, it's posture or poses. Pranayama is the vital energy control or the breath control. Pratyahara, the withdrawal of senses. Dharana is type of concentration, kind of the preface before meditation. Dhyana is meditation. Even though there's not really a translation for dhyana, the closest thing would be meditation. And samadhi is that super conscious state or place of self-realization. So in the first yama, first of five, which we'll cover today is just the first one, is ahimsa. Now, ahimsa. 
The word itself, ahimsa, is kind of a broken down. The word himsa is means violent. That's just what it means. I mean, ahimsa is violent. So ahimsa means nonviolent. And one of the greatest examples of this, especially in, in Indian culture, would be the great Mahatmaji. You know, I, it just his peaceful stance, I guess is the best way to say that, his peaceful stance into making change. And so Mahatma Gandhi, if you're familiar with him, you'll kind of learn a little bit. I may, may, may do some quotes from him today. There's a definition in the, the Yoga Sutras here. And if you go to the second part of the 35th Sutra, it kind of talks about that. And it says, in the presence of one firmly established in non-harming, all hostilities cease. Essentially, it's saying, if you don't hurt others, you won't be hurt. And that's partially true, but I think Ahimsa goes quite a bit deeper than just that. I think there's more than not hurting others because I really believe that Ahimsa is the root of all the other limbs. We have to justify the means to an end and also taking the other limbs, even Asana, Santosha, which is in the Niyamas, has to, we have to go back to Ahimsa and say, does this cause harm in thought, word, or deed? Now, we know that that violence is usually a reaction to fear or jealousy or something along those lines. And so to create a life and a world free of violence is first and foremost for us to find our own courage. We have to be courageous to say, I don't want to find, I don't want to be violent. I'm not interested in violence. I don't need to do that to get to, I don't need to do that to get to my end goal. Well, as we look at Ahimsa, there's more than just physical violence. There's more, there's, there's other violence in the world. I'm going to read to you here. Considering Ahimsa, does the end justify the means? The result of our acts have an impact on our lives and the lives of others, so they do count. But even when action brings a benefit to others, we lose because any act based in violent intent seeks us deeper into ignorance. And this is from Reverend uh, Karnath, sorry, Reverend Jagannath Carrera in the Inside the Yoga Sutras book. It's a really great translation, if you will. There is an example here where it says, does the end justify the means? And he brings up an example of there is a sniper shooting people. And if the police officer or SWAT shoots and injures the sniper, does this follow Ahimsa? And this is up for debate, right? Our instinctual response might be like, yeah, yeah, sure. He was shooting people. And so the police officer did what he did. But Ahimsa goes much deeper than that. Okay. It's not just about the action. Did he shoot the sniper to refrain from harming others? Maybe. But the yogic per perspective in this is is quite a bit different. We have to look at the motivation. Okay, so the motivation is, was it to, only to protect others or did the police officer have an agenda? I don't, you know, not liking him or angry with him for shooting others. See, this example demonstrates the reason why it's difficult to judge the actions of others. We're not always privy to their intentions or motivations. If it is, unselfishly saying, I'm just going to simply act and do my dharma 
then sure, that, that's justifying the ends of the means. But if there is ill intent or anger or frustration there, then that changes. Okay, that is no longer just himsa. There's no longer nonviolence. The violence is in the thought. The action is going to be whatever the action was. I turn to the Bhagavad Gita for this, and I don't have the exact number out with me. I don't have the Bhagavad Gita in front of me right now. But this is the story of Arjuna and Krishna and, of course, the families. And this is how the, the story opens, was with Arjuna on the battlefield saying, I will not harm my kinsmen. He's a great leader, a great fighter, a great archer, and said, I refuse to bring violence to this land. Well, as the story goes on, I don't want to give it all away, but as the story goes on, Krishna says, this is your dharma. It's already been done. Whatever is to be done will be done. You act or don't act, that's karma. Karma is not good or bad. It is just simply action or inaction. So what will you do? And it's about purification of the mind here saying, well, I don't have an ill intent. I'm just simply completing dharma. This is my duty. This is what I'm here to do. And that's where it's going to stay. You know, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to do my dharma and I'm not going to have a necessarily ill intent towards it. Now we have to really realize that this (laughs) takes a lot of courage. (laughs) It takes a lot of courage to say, I am not going to, to fall into the hostilities of the world. We have to find courage and we have to create balance. Balance in our lives is not an easy thing. We are, you know, we're hungry, we're noisy, we're bombarded with all kinds of different stimulation. We have all these different things of the world coming to us and we're bombarded, but we also bombard ourselves. You know, we have our doubts, we have our agendas, we have our truths. And like the body and the mind and soul, we need time to digest and assimilate these things. When you're in the moment of violence, that's usually a reaction and a reaction to fear rather than a response from our heart, from our soul. Balance does not look a certain way. It's dynamic. When I teach yoga, I talk about this. A lot of people will think that balance is being still and steady. And I contradict that by saying balance is dynamic. There's movement and flow to it. When you're balancing, let's just say in tree pose, your toes are gripping the mat, your knee might be a little bit wobbling, your hands might move. This is about balance. About balance in how we deal with powerlessness when we feel as though our power is being taken away. Ahimsa invites us to question the feeling of powerlessness rather than just accept it and fight it, right? So when we feel powerlessness, powerlessness, we have forgotten how much choice that we really have. We have a choice to take action and we have a choice to change. We have these stories and we can certainly repeat the stories over and over and over and over and telling ourselves and telling others how powerlessness we are and how we've been robbed and stolen from. We can sulk we can cry. But we can also ask the question, what do I need to do right now to feel competent to be able to handle this situation? What do I need to do to gain my power back? And there's lots of ways to to do the shift here. There's lots of ways. One of the biggest challenges is to maintain balance is, is to be in a place of awareness first. So self-awareness. Here I am, what am I feeling? I'm feeling powerless. 
And there's a meditation that I've led. If you're on the the patron page, I think it's on there. It's like a rain meditation. And this is really just asks us to recognize R, allow A, investigate where that lives in our body and where maybe it came from, and then nurture it N. So rain meditation. And we carry this sometimes as a story from our childhood. We carry this victim, victimness, <laughs> maybe it's not the right word, but victim mentality. And I think that the quickest way to, to, to come away from that is to simply go into a place of self-love, loving yourself more than caring to retell the story. That story may be great, but it doesn't serve the moment. It doesn't help gain you courage. It actually drops you back into that place of hurt. And when I when I talk about ahimsa, again, it's thought, word, and deed. So there can be violent thoughts. There can be violent actions. There can be violent, you know, violence against each other. There can be violence to you. I mean, violence to others is pretty self-explanatory, right? You know, we hurt somebody. When we're unwilling to look deeply and courageously at our own lives, we can easily violate others. We can find subtle ways that we may not even be thinking of. You know, we can hurt them with our words. We can hurt them by, you know, withholding information or there's all kinds of different ways that we can hurt others. But we also hurt ourselves. And maybe even by not even asking for help can hurt us. Asking for support can hurt us, which causes violence to ourselves. So we can't really think about ahimsa as only fighting. Right? What if we withhold compassion? We learn compassion as we kind of dissolve into our personal version of the world. We grow and we're, we begin to see reality as it really is. We feel this compassion for not just ourselves, but others who we care about. But then it becomes more of a worldview. It moves boundaries for us when we become compassionate, when we feel empathetic, and we can say, you know, I can see how that would feel. I understand that that might have been hard. It could be difficult. There is a a book that I really like called The Yamas and Niyamas, and it's written by a woman named Deborah Adele. And she wrote in here about asking questions for exploration. So I'm going to read one of the, the poems here. I'm not sure if it's hers or, oh no, it came from Eddie... Hilasium, a Holocaust victim, says, ultimately, we have just one moral duty to reclaim large areas of peace in ourselves, more and more peace, and to reflect it towards others. And the more peace there is in us, the more peace there will also be in our troubled world. This sounds a lot like the teachings of Mahatmaji when he said, I I, I don't want violence. I want to live in a world that I feel comfortable with. He said something along the lines of that I I want to live in a world that doesn't have violence, where we don't have to fight for what is ours in our birthright. And Mahatmaji was in the end assassinated. And I was looking for a quote. Well, it was a, a writing about him. And I'm going to paraphrase now because I can't find the quote, but the, the paraphrase is, oh, and uh, when Mahatma Gandhi 
tried his best to propagate ahimsa, and he brought tried to bring a lot of people together. Uh, some of it was over salt, some of it was over oppression. But when he was asked about ahimsa and bringing people together, he was very humble about it and said, "There, there's failed efforts in this world. And he, he admits, I'm still trying. I'm not perfect, which is wonderful that he said that. His entire life was based on ahimsa. I mean, he really believed that that was, not, not only was he a student of the Bhagavad Gita and, and the Yoga Sutras here, but he believed that it was the most important of them all to start because how could we possibly ascend to the other limbs if we haven't mastered the first yama? Well, even without pertain, uh, obtaining the perfection, he earned his name. <laughs> he earned a great name throughout the world as as this like apostle of peace, this you know propagator of peace. And perhaps if Gandhi's practice had been perfected, his assassin may have forgotten the idea of shooting him. You know, if it really had gone worldwide, that assassin wouldn't have been so upset or frustrated when he came into his presence. So even with a little perfection, Gandhi was admired and he was revered by the entire world. Even a bit of ahimsa is enough to elevate us to a higher state. We may not be able to be perfect in ahimsa, but we can try. We can say, does this justify the means? Is this peace or non-harming in thought, word, and deed. And then try from there. See if it makes sense. The cause? Well, it's usually fear or desire or attachment to something. But as it says in the Yoga Sutras, in the presence of one firmly established in non-harming, all hostilities cease. This is up for debate. And since we're, you know, it's kind of a one-way conversation here, we can't really debate it. But think about the areas in which there's less violence and how there's less violence. If we are to have less violence acted upon us, we have to push that nonviolent agenda to others, love others. A simple example is being in traffic. We're all frustrated there. But you don't have to honk your horn and throw fingers and you don't have to yell. And you can be the example, the, the change that you wish to see in the world. Be that change. Be that change with nonviolent actions and nonviolent thoughts. In the coming podcasts, we will begin to unveil the other yamas and niyamas over the next eight episodes. And then we'll go into a few others as we go into the other limbs of yoga. Hope this brought some a little bit of clarity about what ahimsa is. And Kind of as a final thought here, those who are religious or have other religious books that they have studied from all different denominations, think about how ahimsa is in alignment with your belief system. In which ways does it follow what you believe? You know, many, when I teach this into yoga teacher training, I say, turn off the idea that it's from some distant land a long time ago from a person that you don't know, that you've never heard of, and that you're just learning it as philosophy. What if this was how the world is supposed to be? That's why it shows up in so many other books. This is, it's perfection repeated over and over and over. What if we were to instill this as something that we have 
have to do as a worldwide population? What would our world look like, especially in the way we are now, with wars in our in areas of the world like Palestine and Korea? We've been through many wars and world wars. We've been through conflicts. We've policed other nations. But I think really Ahimsa stems from an idea that we are not in individual nations, but we're a worldwide population, that we are humans who are the caretakers or the caretakers of this planet. We have been created in the image of God for the purpose of caring for this planet, not as individuals, not as borders, not as different languages, not as different cultures, but as humans coming together. This is some of the reasons why I absolutely adore India for this reason is, you know, bringing, bringing yoga to the West introduced that it wasn't by mistake. This was by divine intervention with some of the early saints like Paramahansa Yogananda and Lahiri Mahaseya, even down to Krishnamacharya, you know, bringing vinyasa yoga and others who knew that this needed to go to the world, not just to India. This is certainly the gift to the world from India, but in other cultures also, even in Native American cultures, you know, sharing the sweat lodge for healing and sharing prayer. Doesn't matter what your belief is. Depends on how you feel. Is it in alignment to your belief or is it against your alignment to your belief? And I'll close now with, with Mahatma Gandhi's famous quote when he was asked, What is his message to the world? He said, My life is my message. Let your life be the message to the world that you wish to be known by. Thanks, friends. See you on the next one.